Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry in the Pacific Northwest. Today is the 15th of August, 2019, and we're going to start segment four on my lengthy, in-depth discussion of the regulation of T-regulatory cells. Now, I, I think I'm going to recap a little bit about why we're doing this. We've, been, we've covered already several papers uh, in the published literature discussing T helper cells, T regulatory cells, um, basically the acquired immune response. We've done it in the first three segments, and I've also talked about it in the past in authentic biochemistry and in my um, parallel uh, offering to the research scientific and those interested in science, particularly biomedical science communities. Uh, Med, and that is, those are my YouTube channel uh, video lectures. So I've talked about it quite a bit, but I want to go back and recap uh, the immune response a little bit uh, this afternoon. The main reason is because I wanted to make sure that everyone grasps every time they listen to one of the episodes while we're talking about this. Obviously, the lymphatic system and the innate immune system are both really important for disease control in humans. It is your defense mechanism uh, that's the immune system, but it's much more than that. Uh, basically, it's also involved in generating um, archetypical changes in the expression of genes in all cells that are not just associated with the environment. So the immune system also helps tailor the neural system, both the central nervous system and the peripheral nervous system, via resident uh, immune cells in those tissues and also the circulating cells, which bring with them information and therefore communicate uh, novel information and temporally new information that has to be associated with the adaptive changes necessary for continued survival. And those include neuro re- rewiring, such as even in such things as the learning process. So uh, I don't think there's anything more important in biology, human biology, than for everyone to have some grasp of the immune system. Um, people that are in high school, uh, all the way through uh, scientists, medical doctors, veterinarians, and philosophers, lawyers, uh, and, and regular people with, without uh, any significant uh, uh, advanced beyond the baccalaureate degree. People should have a really good understanding of what the immune system is because everything that's geared towards understanding medicine and human health, and that includes nutrition and exercise, uh, you're not going to understand any of that at a depth you need to so you can be a consumer of what's out there in the world of ideas, as well as the, the world of advertisement. Uh, you can't do that judiciously and carefully and with any degree of uh, certainty uh, unless you have a good, uh, pretty good grasp of what the immune system is. So I, I would say this is a really take-home message. Now, again, this is called Authentic Biochemistry, my podcast. You might say, well, isn't this immunology then? I say, no. Immunology is based on biochemistry, just like physiology is. And immunology is a component of physiology, uh, I would argue. And so, the, But the foundation is always biochemistry. And no, it's not physics and chemistry. Physics and chemistry, of course, help build 
uh, biochemistry and biophysics. But if you go to the level of basic chemistry, like say general inorganic chemistry or general uh, particle physics, those are of course important to understand to get to the principal foundations of biochemistry, but they don't help you make that leap into understanding biology unless you have that conduit of biochemistry. And biochemistry, I would argue, is the collective fusion of our basic understandings of physical sciences, as well as philosophical uh, entreaty, because you need to be able to use philosophy to come up with hypothetical deductions to, to generate an, uh, uh, experimental designs and then carry out those experiments carefully with good controls. And all of that requires a really good head on your shoulders. And that needs logic. And logic is only one component of philosophy. And there's a lot more to it than that. And indeed, all of philosophy is used, I think, in biochemical principles. And we've talked about that, too, in my previous episodes. But that's all I want to say now. But Okay, I'm already five minutes into this uh, new segment of authentic biochemistry, and all I've really done is give you a prolegomena, but that was necessary. So continuing uh, the prolegomena, continuing this this precession of getting back to, we were deep into Tregs. I want to remind you that lymphoid cells are complex and they can interconvert. And I want you to understand that there is an adaptive immune system and then it arose late in evolution. When I say late in evolution, I mean, oh, about probably 500 million years ago. But that's still late in uh, the evolution of living systems. <clears throat> so the adaptive immune system consists of two cell lineages, the B cells and the T cells. Those are called B and T lymphocytes. And the way they work is they express recombining antigen-specific protein receptors and so you, after you get antigen presentation to those receptors on either B or T cells, there is an alteration of the expression of genes in those cell lineages. And that involves a change too in metabolism, which means a change in the, all the biochemical pathways that you learned if you took biochemistry, if you're, if you're a physician. Uh, or, or if you're in graduate school, you, you remember your biochemistry enough to remember there were a lot of pathways. All those pathways are engaged in very specific vectorial ways so that you then generate a repertoire response to these foreign antigens in your acquired or, or in your um, adaptive immune system. So I want you to keep that in mind. Basic metabolic pathways. Bioenergetics are involved here, and I've talked about that in the past too. But Okay, boom, way beyond that now, I want you to understand that these receptors are, are involved in taking a naive T or B cell and activating what's called a cognate antigen in secondary lymphoid system. This usually happens in secondary lymphoid organs. And in those lymphoid organs, what happens to those B and T cells is they go through significant changes in differentiation and division of the B and T cells and then finally, those B and T cells are recruited and mobilized so that they can generate their effector function, okay? Now, that's in contrast to the innate system. I'm not going to say much more than that now because I've already covered it. And I also want you to remember there are innate lymphocytes. Um, and these innate lymphocytes are probably somewhere 
they're, they're called innate lymphoid cells. They're probably somewhere between the evolution of the innate immune system and the acquired or adaptive immune system, somewhere during the evolution of uh, morphing into the acquired immune response. These innate lymphoid cells have a very important niche, and they've only recently been discovered and discussed. We talked about them. One of the famous major ones is the natural killer cell lineage. I'm not going to go back to that. I'm just telling you that there are helper-like innate lymphoid cells, and I talked about them. And I'm not going to get back to them uh, anytime soon after for this talk. Now, I want you to understand a little bit about the uh, the evolution of the adaptive immune system. Now, some of what I'm going to talk about here comes from a paper published way back in 2011 in Advances in Immunology, <clears throat> Volume 109. So let's get to let's get into this. There are two variations of what's called recombinatorial adaptive immune systems, or AISs. Uh, and they arose in vertebrates about a half a billion years ago, as I mentioned a few minutes ago. So you have the jawed vertebrates, that's us, and they diversify their repertoire of an immunoglobulin domain-based uh, T and B cell antigen receptors, mainly through a rearrangement of VD gene segments and somatic hypermutation. That encapsulates all of how it happens with immunoglobulin or so-called antibody production. Now, the T cell has a T cell receptor. So the T cell receptor does the same kind of rearrangement of gene segments and then a certain kind of somatic hypermutations allows for those T cell receptor lineages to be variable and adaptive, hence the adaptive immune response, to new insults to the system, such as foreign antigen. So the AIS of the jawless vertebrates, okay, that can they contain variable lymphoid receptors or VLRs. Now, they're generated through a recombination of diverse leucine-rich repeats, or LRRs. Leucine-rich repeats are found in proteins, obviously. Now, the transposon-like recombination activation, which is unique to AIS, is found in the jawed vertebrates. So transposon-like meaning that the, there are domains of DNA that move around and recombine via homologous recombination that give you all the diversification of, uh, say, the B-cell lineage proteins and the TCRs, right, the T-cell receptors. So that's a transposon-like recombination. So that, so that mechanism is pretty ancient, we believe, because viruses have been using it for a while. Now, the mutational activation induced by cytidine deaminase is a major strategy for the uh, non uh, transposon-like recombination. So remember that cytidine deaminase for you biochemistry people and for you medical doctors, you need to know this. That's when cytosine is deaminated to uracil. Okay, and when that happens, if you've got you know again a CG uh, in the uh, DNA and you get that deamination, you end up with a UG, and that's corrected during DNA replication because you can't have uracil because that's a uh, uh, that's not a deoxyribose, it's a ribonucleotide, um, you get AT, okay? And so AT, so you go from CG and you mutate to AT, okay? So you go from a CG pair to an AT pair when you get the activity of a cytidine deaminase. That's one way to introduce, you see, mutational 
activation chemistry um, so that you get changes or alterations in what? In the sequence of the DNA. And that sudden deaminase is actually a mechanism of some retroviruses so that they can constantly hypermutate. But of course, if you turn that cytidine deaminase on full bore all the way, turn it way, way up, amplitude modulation, what happens is you get such a scrambling and mutation, high mutation rate of uh, whatever organism's genome is doing this, that it dies because it doesn't make enough useful proteins. So that's a little insight in some antiviral discussions that people look at, tuning up, turning up cytidine deaminase. But with that, that's a digression. And I don't say I'm sorry because it's a good digression. Anyways, basic AIS design. Okay, remember that's adaptive immune system design. It features then two interactive T and B lymphocytic arms. And you see this both in the jaw and jawless uh, vertebrates. But basically all of that arose, we believe, from innate immunity. That's why I was talking to you before about the innate lymphocyte. Uh, somewhere intermediate there. But I wanted to get that evolutionary understanding. So remember, adaptive immune cells fall into two main categories. You get cell-mediated and humoral. Humoral, primarily we're talking about B cells. They mature in the bone marrow. You get plasma cells, which secrete antibodies, okay? What are the antibodies? IgM, IgD, IgG, IgA, IgE. Now, the IgM is actually membrane-bound, so it really isn't secreted, although it can be released from a plasma membrane. IgD, likewise, is an adapter immunoglobulin in the plasma membrane, usually not secreted, although it can signal via um, a, 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 a partial um, association with the extracellular matrix, okay? Uh, I'm remembering this from, uh, I'm just getting this from memory, but I remember that from teaching immunology. Now, IgG is secreted, it's a glycoprotein secreted. We all have heard of that. IgA is circulating serum IgA. It's everywhere, for example, it's in your saliva. And IgE, you find associated with mast cell and basophil binding uh, as triggering those innate cells to follow along with whatever the, B, the plasma cell is doing. The IgA is what we call a mucosal immunity. Like I said, it's in the serum. And then IgG is what circulates generally in the blood. So mucosal immunity is what's, what's always around. So it's, so SIGA uh, is called serum immunoglobulin A. So now let's switch back and talk about T cells again. T cells mature in the thymus. It's rather called T cells. See, B cells, bone marrow, T cells, thymus. So what are they differentiated into? I already talked about this, but CD8 positive cytotoxic T cells, and they can induce apoptosis in target cells, full stop. That's all we need to say about those. Then you have the CD4s. The CD4s recognize major histocompatibility complex two containing antigens on, for example, professional antigen-presenting cells. So what do they do? They differentiate into Th1, Th2, and Th17. Th1 cells activate macrophages. They destroy pathogens directly. And they also are involved in B cell activation. Really important. Th1 uh, adaptive immunity, really important in dealing with invading pathogens. Th2 also interact with B cells. That's the main thing they do. Okay, they, there's more nuance to that. But if you want to say what's the major thing a Th2 does, it is involved in B cell differentiation, mobilization to infection sites. And then the TH17, those are really cool too. Those are involved in uh, bacterial control, but also it's interesting that they seem to have adapted to fungal infections. 
TH17, although TH17 is turned on via uh, immunization. So there's a lot more to that, but it's just your basic adaptive immune system that I want you to understand. So again, thinking about the evolution, innate immunity goes all the way from, you know, basically early eukaryotic differentiation. So even the separation between plants and animals, if you have some kind of innate immune response in plants, although it's not like it is in animals, but in animals, all the metazoans, so you start off with uh, nidarians and arthropods and nematodes and mollusks and annelids and ectoderms, all of those are carrying out innate immunity. Um, cephalochordates, urochordates, they're all doing it as well. Um, you have toll-like receptors coming in by the time you hit uh, annelid to uh, echinoderms. Toll-like receptors I talked about before, that's to do with... Um, detecting pattern recognition. Those are pattern recognition receptors. By the time you get to urochordates and the agnathans, which are like lampreys, and then the nathostomes, which are like sharks, early fish, that's when you start to get lymphocyte-based adaptive immunity. So way up into the fish, right? And you don't get the T-cell receptor or the production of uh, the immunoglobulins until you really get all the way to uh, nathostomes, which are basically like the really ancient fish, like sharks. So I want to, that, again, it's half a billion years ago, but that's still a long time ago relative to uh, the evolution of biological systems, adaptive biochemical biological systems. So also remember that when you talk about a hemato, um, hemocytoblast, hemocytoblasts differentiate into proerythroblasts, which eventually become erythrocytes. The Hemocytoblasts can also make myoblasts, which then form progranulocytes. Progranulocytes can make basophils, eosinophils, and neutrophils. Those are all known as granulocytes, all members of the leukocyte family. Hematocytoblasts can also produce lymphoblasts, which can produce lymphocytes, and they can produce monoblasts, which can produce monocytes. And those are all the agranulocytes, and those are still part of the leukocyte community. Um, all of the, all lymphocytes, therefore, are also leukocytes, you understand. There's also one other branch of the hemat, hemocytoblast. They can make a megakaryoblast, which makes a megakaryocyte, which can then make thrombocytes, just to, just to fulfill all of the definitions involved. So again, the immune system can be innate. It's generally called nonspecific, but that's not really true because you've got toll-like receptors and pattern recognition. But the innate immune response can be cellular and humoral. Whereas the adaptive immune response as well can be cellular, humoral, humoral primarily, again, the plasma cells. Um, it's a secondary line of defense. It's very specific because of that recombination mechanism, the adaptational recombination mechanism. Uh, and therefore, it protects also because, because of that. It, memory cells can be generated. Those memory cells will, will allow for it to recognize when the antigen comes again. That's the whole basis of vaccination, by the way. Or when you first experience a viral attack, not talking about vaccinations or immunization, just when you get a virus, uh, once you once you cure that virus, once you survive that virus, your your adaptive immune system makes memory cells, um, and those memory cells hang around your body all your life. Sometimes that erodes over time when you get really old, but they hang around all your life, so you're always going to be resistant to that virus that say you got when you were eight years old and you were playing in a puddle. I guess eight-year-olds are playing the puddle, two-year-old playing in the puddle, eight-year-old playing, uh, hanging from trees. 
getting a cut. Okay, there you go. So again, the immune system is broken up into myeloid cells. Those include granulocytes and monocytes. The granulocytes are neutrophils, basophils, and eosinophils. The monocytes are macrophages, cupfer cells, and dendritic cells, really important APCs, by the way. Um, and the lymphoid cells are T cells, which can be further segregated into helper cells or effector cells. Um, so they used to be called suppressor. Now they're called T regs, really important for our old talk here. And then the cytotoxic T lymphocytes, the ones I really dig. I love cytotoxic T lymphocytes. I think it's because of all that hard constant sound. Plus, they're really deadly and they're really useful. Lymphoid cells also, as I said, break out into B cells and those become plasma cells. I don't, I'm not going to talk about that hardly anymore today. And there's, of course, the natural killer cell lineage from the lymphoid line. All right. So now remember that from the thymus, you get the CD4, CD8 positives. And from that whole lineage, you make Th2, Th1, and the cytotoxic T lymphocytes. Okay. And you remember, too, that the uh, the so-called helper or effector T cells can stimulate B cells. They can stimulate cytotoxic T cells, and they can go down a pathway making memory helper T cells. So that you get a secondary exposure of antigen, you can go back and you can you can remove that virus, for example, or whatever that bacteria. That bacteria. So you have memory B cells, memory T cells, active cytotoxic T cells. You have plasmacytes, which also make antibodies. And that's all part of the secondary antibody response in that last bit. All right. So what else we want to say here? Remember that CD8 cells in the presence of IL-12 um, will make cytotoxic T cells as long as there is a CXCR3. CD4 T cells in the presence of IL-12 will, when the transcription factor T-BET is made, will make the Th1 lineage. Th1 lineage in the presence of interferon gamma, of course, is going to carry out Th1 inflammatory responses with a lot of other chemokines. We've discussed this before. So I just wanted to get you back into that. Okay, so finally, that was a, a long, I guess, introduction or prolegomena, as I like to say, of uh, what we're doing uh, right this moment. <laughs> and what, the, what we're doing right this moment is getting to this discussion of T cell receptors in conjunction with CD28, another protein, um, what happens when the T-cell receptor is activated? It turns on a phospholipase C-gamma, which releases calcium. And then that calcium, through the through processing and, and uh, being uh, associated with calcineurin, then causes the, uh, the dephosphorylation of something called N-fat. N-fat then can act as part of one of the transcription factors on the promoter of the of the genes that are going to code for what? It's going to code for the FOXP3 gene. And the FOXP3 gene ultimately is itself a transcription factor, but it is the transcription factor that when you think Treg, think FOXP3. Treg, FOXP3. So that's how the T cell receptor can generate NFAT. It also generates through protein kinase A, uh, Kreb binding to ATF. So you get, uh, you get that. You, those are all like components of the regulation of the promoter for the synthesis. That is this, the expression at the RNA level of FOXP3. So you have the promoter region for FOXP3, which has phosphorylated stat protein. Remember we talked about the Jack stat pathway before. Um, Fox 
three is also part uh, also binds as a transcription factor its own promoter. Uh, you have AP1, you have C-rel, you have N-fat, non-phosphorylated. Then you have the three CNSs. Remember, those are non-coding sequences that are still part of the enhancer region of the FOXP3. I mean, wow, this is complicated, but no, it isn't. So CNS1 binds those phosphorylated SMAD proteins uh, and by, it, it binds uh, at least one mole of AP1 and the N-fat. You, then you get the phosphorylated stats and the CREB ATF complex with the RUNCs. Uh, and again, the FOX1 or FOX3 transcription factor along with the C-REL, that's on CNS2. And then on CNS3, you pretty much just have the C-REL. So you have also epigenetic modifications. So a naive CD4 T cells, you get methylated CPG. On uh, th thymus Tregs, you get demethylation of the CPGs and you get an acetylation of the histones. And for the peripheral Tregs, you get demethylation of the CPGs and you also get acetylated histones. So remember, this is all part of the epigenetic processing. Likewise, on CNS2, you get uh, methylated CPGs becoming demethylated. You get acetylation of uh, histones associated with that portion of the enhancer element. And then you do get some new de novo methylation of CPG islands, which helps further fine-tune control epigenetically that CNS2 component of the enhancer region. So all of that is it comes after TCR stimulation. So you got all these transcription factors, NFAT, AP1, SP1, CREB, ATF, STAT5. All of these can also respond. The STAT, for example, entire pathway turns on via interleukin-2 receptor ligand binding, okay? So that's another component of this T-cell regulation. You need interleukin-2. You also have TGF, uh, beta, bind to its receptor. That's the whole SMAD story. Phosphorylation of SMAD, as I said, is associated with uh, turning on the FOXP3 expression, okay? Um, again, we talked about the CPG island and what else I want to say. I think that's enough for now, for that whole TCR system. Now, Beyond getting expression of the FOXP3, which then allows you to differentiate into a Treg, you also have association with these uh, naive T cells becoming Tregs with uh, professional antigen presenting cells. They're going to interact with the VEGF receptor on the T cell and also with the OX40 receptor. And the antigen presenting cell is going to interact with that. And it, likewise, interleukin-2 is also a key feature here. You know, looking to binding to CD25. Remember, that's the co-adapter uh, associated with the T-cell receptor. So if you have any single nucleotide polymorphisms in either interleukin-2 or interleukin-2 receptor alpha, you're not going to get differentiation into the T-reg lineage. So you, don't need, you don't want any uh, single, uh, SNPs in IL-2 or IL-2RA. Uh, Likewise, that if you get excessive amounts of interferon gamma, binding to the interferon gamma receptor that can also turn down the Treg cell. Just likewise with TNF-alpha. You need TNF-alpha to bind its receptor on that naive T, CD4 T cell lineage to make a Treg, but a high amount, like a high level of TNF-alpha, if that's not shut down, that can shut down then distal to this complex, complex discussion, the Treg lineage, okay? Because remember, FOXP3 needs to be turned on. So FOX3A and FOX1 in the presence of FOXP3, all of those genes need to be expressed. 
P10 is also associated with this, associated with this entire process. So you get all these intracellular molecules, Helios, EOS, P10, and those are all key molecules for optimal Treg function. Okay, and you need to get that Fox13 alpha localization into the nucleus. If we haven't said so already, because remember it's transcription factor. It's absolutely necessary to stabilize the FOXP3 in the nucleus of the Tregs. This is all part of the stability, okay? You need to stabilize the Treg cells because otherwise, remember what happens, they can, they can switch, they can flip, and they can go to a T helper cell, right? Which is not what you want. You don't want T helper cells in that process. So we're going to stop here.